When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the latest tennis podcast. Love tennis podcast, excuse me. That's a good start, getting the name of your own show wrong. Um, I'm, of course, George Belshaw, and I'll soon be joined by James Gray and Calvin Betton live here on Locker Room. I have to say, I'm absolutely exhausted today. I've done a lot of exercise. Uh, so hopefully, Calvin and James will provide the energy that is lacking from my body today. Hello, Calvin. How's it going? Very tired, I was just saying. I managed to um, get the name of our show wrong within the first sentence, so that, that was a good start. That, that probably yeah. shows how lethargic I'm feeling. Today. Yeah. Yeah. What's the new name, just so we know? What's the new name, George? Tell me the name. What's the new name of what, sorry? No, you podcast. Said you, uh, you said you ne- called the podcast a different name. Just If, you, if you're going to change the name, I feel like I should know. I think I called it... Uh, um, I think I just called it Tennis Podcast, which it obviously exists in its <laughs> own right. Uh, yeah. I can't remember. remember. On a number of levels. Yeah, yeah I've lost my head a bit today. As you can hear, uh, George has cycled oh, at least 10 kilometres. Um, there were there was a one hill, uh, I hear. <laughs> at least 10. <laughs> I mean, a, it was, underplaying it's it. not, I'm not wrong. I'm not lying. It uh, is at least yeah, 10, George that's George insisted, because of course... Cycling doesn't happen unless if you don't record it on Strava, it didn't happen. So George insisted posting his uh, his tracks on on our WhatsApp group, and I was quite impressed because there was four hours worth of cycling, but with only four hundred meters of elevation gain, which I mm. think is a bit weak. But uh, you but... have to remember that George George is eight foot seven and does this <laughs> on, on a folding Brompton bike. Uh, which I think must just look hilarious, like like a clown bicycle. You know, there's tiny ones that you can sort of cycle around. Um, <laughs> as usual, we've become distracted very early on. And we have much to talk about this week and much many people to talk to. Uh, I'm delighted to say that in a few moments we're going to be 
joined by Sasha Ojmo, whose name I have almost certainly mispronounced. I apologise, Sasha, for my Serbian. Uh, he's uh, a journalist from Sport Club in uh, Serbia, a big... Um, George, you're making a face like Sasha might not be connecting properly, which isn't great. I'm sorry, my no, internet's no. Okay. being funny, so I, I just was okay. missing everything. Excuse you're my face. You're on top form today, George. You're smashing this out of the park. It's going um, really well. I think Sasha's here now. Because we are recording this um, during the third set of Andy Murray's uh, match against Robin Harzer in Rotterdam. I was rather hoping that we could kind of talk about the result, um, but Muzz lost the first set and then uh, won the second in a tiebreak, so we are waiting the result there. Maybe we'll be able to discuss it a little bit later on, but that's not why Sasha is here. Uh, Sasha's here to talk about Novak Djokovic, who this week has equaled Roger Federer 310 weeks at number one, which we kind of knew was going to happen about four months ago, but you know, it didn't happen, so we had to wait, and he will, of course, overtake him next week. Sasha, this is a massive achievement for Novak. Thank you very much for joining us to kind of celebrate it and talk about it. Um, I imagine that you've been preparing this for months, the street parties, you know, the pieces that you're going to write, the whole thing. Well, thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, obviously, it's a, it's a remarkable feat, something that uh, has been anticipated for quite some time now, but when you take... Uh, a bigger look back, it's been 10 years since he first climbed to number one spot in the world, and 10 years later, it's historic number one. Amazing, indeed. I've actually been here for a few minutes. I've been listening to you guys talk, and I've been watching Andy as well, so I hope he wins. <laughs> Good. Weirdly, weirdly, we're all in the same boat, despite being all in different locations around the country and around the world. Um, Novak has, of course, picked up another Australian Open title as well uh, in the last couple of weeks. I mean... Dramatic for so many reasons. You know, it was a pretty torrid trip in some ways for him. You know, the, I know that he wasn't well received by the Australian media, and I know we'll talk about that a bit later. But from a tennis perspective, um, how how good a, a win was this in his kind of uh, mantra of, of different Australian Open wins? Putting aside uh, the off-court stuff, and there has been plenty of off-court stuff this time, Around, I think the most impressive match was obviously his finals against Medvedev. And there's been a lot of talk about his serve throughout the, the tournament. And for good reason, I think he served twice 20 or more aces. But uh, although serve did, was exceptionally well in the finals as well, I think we went back in a way to old Novak because I feel that he destroyed Daniel with his returns and with his return positioning. And, you know putting the balls under his feet. And that was really one of the... I think Novak didn't play a, a better slam final since Melbourne 2019. Since then, he won two. But uh, both against Federer at Wimbledon 2019 and against team last year in Melbourne, he had these lapses, let's say, some drops in focus or level of play. But... Here, he was just himself from the first to the last point, and it was, it was refreshing to see, and somehow he, the Melbourne, Melbourne really looks to, to, wake, to wake him up, to wake that beast inside of him. Sasha, George here, good to, good to hear from you. It's been a long time, mate. Um, yeah. I was just going to say on, on Novak, I mean, I, I think what you can really tell us about from your perspective where you sit and you see all the Serbian media and you, you know, you know everything about Serbia and how Djokovic fits into that piece. I mean, 
a few people have kind of described Novak to me as godlike in Serbia and almost can't do anything wrong and has this uh, perfect mantra. But you've also got quite an interesting relationship with him in the media. And I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I, I know before you've had Novak help you with your marriage proposal. I was just wondering if you could speak a bit about his relationship, both with Serbian people and with the media and what you find him like as a guy. Oh, first of all, I must say, I mean, we have an exceptionally well professional relationship, but it's really hard to talk about someone as a person because we don't know each other that much. Obviously, I feel that I know him a bit better because he's a public personality and all of that. But, you know, except for the professional relationship, which I must say is great. And uh, we say hello, we maybe chit chat a few times, but it's not like that. We are close friends. Uh, from what, from my perspective, he's always been uh, forthcoming, and uh, especially from my perspective as a journalist, he's always given us good answers. He he always gives us something to work with, and he's uh, and he's a guy that is not afraid to go in depth with his answers, both when we speak about on court and off court stuff, and that is something that I really appreciate, and that which is good for our job as well. Uh, as for the for the first part of uh, your question, that he is considered as a god here, uh, I'm not sure that uh, you're right about that. Actually, I'm I'm quite sure you're not right. Of course, there is a lot of people that adore him over here because, uh, in my opinion, and not just mine, he's the best athlete this country has ever had, and Serbia has had a lot of tremendous athletes throughout its history, especially especially basketball players. So, yes, he's got a huge fan base here. There is a, a lot of people that love him, but it's not its not like everyone loves him. If you go to, I don't know, some websites and check the readers' comments, they won't all be affirmative. Of course, the ma- majority would be affirmative, just like, I suppose, when you go to, I don't know, El País or Marca, there is a lot of affirmative comments on Rafa, but not all of them. I, I think it is the... It's the same with Novak. What I think he managed to do is to attract people to tennis and to, and to sports in general. Those people who wouldn't normally be attracted. Let's say some older population. There is, this, uh, there is actually this famous video clip. I can forward it to you guys later if you want. Uh, this uh, old lady, she's a, she's a grandmother and her... Uh, her grandson is film, filming her watching uh, the 2011 uh, Wimbledon finals, and she knows she knows her stuff. She knows that Novak is gonna be uh, number one, that number one, and that uh, she knows everything. And uh, the other day on Twitter, this guy w- w- sent me uh, like uh, two paper sheets where his grandmother has been writing the results from the Australian Open and counting how much he needs, uh, what are the shots he was playing and stuff like that. So I think <laughs> that's the biggest the biggest influence Novak has had. And some people that, uh, uh, that haven't been following sports, really, they started to follow sports and tennis through him. And I must say that tennis has uh, had a huge boost thanks to him over here. But it's not like... Of course, everyone watches Novak's matches, but people have been grown to to love tennis more. So I can say that an average match, let's say, I don't know, Rotterdam uh, Series 500 is going to be watched as some 
you know, average basketball game, which was unthinkable 10 to 15 years ago. Mm. Calvin, sorry, I think you, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, yeah, Sasha, uh, nice to meet you. It's Calvin here. Um, nice to meet you too. Sasha, w- w- one thing I sort of wondered, I- I'm a tennis coach, um, and I wondered, um, obviously in Serbia, you've got a sort of decent history of, of, of athletes and tennis players before Novak, um, and I guess in Yugoslavia before that. Um, at what age was it apparent that you had something really special in Djokovic that was, I guess, a level above what you'd seen before? Um, or was it apparent or, or was it, did it only become apparent later on um, as things developed? Uh, it depends to whom. Uh, I mean, I was pretty, uh, I'm a year younger than him. So, okay. uh, but I know, for example, my good uh, friend of mine and colleague of mine, Neboj Savishkovic. Uh, he is an experienced and well-known sports commentator over here in Serbia and throughout this region of ours, ex-Yugoslavia. And he knew about Novak. And uh, he, he always uh, tells me stories from his, uh, from his younger days. So uh, people who were, uh, not say inner circle, but who were more closely involved in tennis knew that Serbia has a gem. I mean, okay. of course, no one, uh, no one could have predicted that he would go on to win 18 Grand Slam titles, but that uh, he was something special. Yes, a lot, a lot of people knew, and it turned out, in ter- it turned out to be so uh, quite early on. I mean, from from when he was seventeen, eighteen, you could tell that he was going to play some serious tennis. Mm-hmm. Okay, I remember. Go on, sorry, Jim. Funny enough, I I remember because um, I was reading it before the Australian Open. When he played doubles with with Murray in Melbourne, when I think they were both eighteen at the time, and they went into the media room, and Novak got asked one question in the whole press conference, and all the other questions were for Andy Murray because everyone was like, "Well, this Andy Murray guy, he's going to be the next big thing," and not that you know, pe- not that people outside Serbia didn't know Novak, but of the two of them, they were more convinced about Andy, and I guess that kind of that sometimes shows like just the way the media can, can look at things. George, sorry, I interrupted Of course. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, that's, that particular situation shows how media can look at things, but I guess, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you guys come from a, from a wealthier country. And as you know, uh, of course, uh, there is like three or four Serbian journalists, even with Novak being number one, and there is like 15 or 10 journalists from Great Britain or... USA. Yeah. So I guess, so I guess, had Novak accepted Britain, British citizenship when he was offered, <laughs> there would be a few more questions <laughs> to him during that press conference. I, sorry, I, I don't know if you're joking there, Sasha. Did he get offered British citizenship? Yeah, he yeah. did. He was. Did I, I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't. George is nodding like everyone knew this, but I, I mean, <laughs> what, can, can you tell us that story? Because I don't know if listeners will know that story. Oh, for, there is not much to tell. He got offered the British citizenship when he was uh, when he was a teenager in his late teens. I'm not exactly yeah. sure, so don't uh, don't. Uh, I think he was 17 or 18. I'm not quite sure, so don't take this. You can look it up on the internet, and uh, they refuse as a family. Yeah. So and okay. that's more or less it. Okay. Well, never mind. It didn't turn up. It didn't turn up too much anyway. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can confirm that is true as well. Don't worry. Um, but the. Um, yeah, see, I was going to say, just you know, we mentioned Novak and Murray together there a second ago. I mean, Andy is someone here who 
has obviously been a massive icon for other British tennis players coming through. And I know he reaches out to a lot of players and texts them and says, well done for your matches. And he follows all the young Brits matches, etc. I saw Novak at the start of the year. There was a nice click of him with, uh, I think it was Danilovic, where he was kind of coaching her on court. I was just wondering whether he has a similar relationship with young Serbians that you know. Is he kind of quite invested in the younger ends of the game? That, that's maybe something we don't really hear about in Britain. So uh, you wouldn't believe how much. I mean, there is uh, there are a lot of stories uh, on that particular subject that um that I'm not, let's say, allowed to share. That I wouldn't be, feel comfortable sharing because I feel that I would betray someone's trust. But often when I when I speak to players. Someone says, oh, Novak did this for me, did that for me, but please don't don't put it out in public because he doesn't want it out there. So, for example, during this, uh, uh, a lot of, not just on-court stuff, but off-court stuff as well, financially, you name it. But during, during this winter, he was, uh, I think he really stepped up his... Uh, role as a mentor and actually I'm not sure I it was uh, near the end of the last year that he said that he uh, he told us that he would like to be a coach and a mentor after after his career is over so I guess he was having a little trial for himself during this winter and he he really helped uh, particularly Olga Danilovic and another up-and-coming uh, Serbian tennis player Hamad Medjedovic you will probably hear from him in uh, in years to come so I and I know how much it means to them, not just the and uh, I mean during this winter Novak organized the camp as you as you guys all know uh, for the for the Serbian and the regional tennis players because and many of them wouldn't have uh, a lot of opportunities to practice otherwise. For example, there was the Sabano brothers; they they usually have troubles finding indoor courts. Uh, during winter time, and now with the virus, they would probably wouldn't be able to practice. Had Novak invited them to to his uh, to his tennis center to practice, so yes, there is uh, a huge amount of similar stories with Novak helping and inspiring, and not just that. I uh, uh, I remember uh, Janko Tipsarevic's interview from I don't know how many years ago, but when he said that there is a kind of uh, a positive jealousy between them. So when he was asked about his, let's say, late career push and making a top 10 two years in a row, he said that he found inspiration partly in Novak, seeing Novak, a guy who he grew up with, he's three years older, doing what he was doing. He said, I'll try and give it my best and see how far I can go. And, and I think they pushed and inspired each other and it certainly helps that uh, the whole whole that generation, Tipsarevic, Stravitsky, Zimonic, that they're they're mostly really good friends, and somehow that family grew to to younger guys, uh, Krajinovic, uh, Lajovic, and now even younger's, even younger guys like Kasmanovic. That's really interesting. Um, the the other thing I was really interested to talk to you about, um, you wrote a really nice article for tennis majors where I think you're doing a bit of work now as well um during the australian open about novak and how he feels he's been perceived um in the wider media and you you drew some kind of comparisons with federer about you know 
how his injuries are always believed and Novak, there are question marks around it. I was wondering, for people who maybe haven't read the article, maybe you could just kind of flesh that out a little bit and kind of explain Novak's stance and your own personal thoughts on that. Oh, my own personal thoughts on that. I'm not always aligned with Novak's thoughts, but on this particular subject, I am. I mean, I, I've written, I've written in that article. I mean, I was there for. It's. Uh, I mean, there are numerous examples, but if you want to stick to that one in the in that article, okay. Oh, so Federer, when he when Federer has beaten Sandgren, I mean, it was a similar situation. He got injured. He played injured, he took a medical timeout, went on to win, went on to play semis and lose to Novak in the semis, although he was 4-1 and love 40 up in the first set. And uh, after the match, there were headlines about heroic Federer win, etc., uh, etc. Et but, but when Novak wins in similar fashion, even though he, was, he got injured when he was two sets to love up, uh, there is a talk about him uh, faking an injury, or if not faking, then exaggerating it, making it look bigger than it was. I really don't know what his motivation would be to do that, especially having been two sets to love up against uh, a player he he should comfortably win. But that's just one. That is just one of the one of examples. I mean, uh, for example. Uh, let's just let's just imagine for a second, and this is by no way a sting against Rafa or anything like that. But let's just say Novak said he had a back injury, doesn't play ATP Cup, and wins his four matches without dropping a set. What would the comments on Djokovic look like then in the media? Well, if he gets I mean, this I, kind, I, I if he gets this I, kind of treatment when he gets injured during the match. What would the comments I be? I can't. I can't speak for other members of the media, but I know that um, we pretty universally on this pod, when when Nadal had breezed through the first week without going to a tiebreak, uh, that we pretty much dismissed his back injury as as a falsehood, um, and I'm certainly not convinced of it uh, there. Um, I, I guess my my kind of counterpoint to you, Sasha, would be, okay, yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but. Like Novak's injury, if if he you know he he came through it incredibly well for what for what was a serious injury. Like it's remarkable what he did in the four matches that followed it, isn't it? Absolutely, but it's just and, that and... remarkable. It's not the it's not the first time that a player with injury wins the tournament, goes through the tournament. I mean, I I think. Uh... I think Matt Zamek has written about it. It was a really wonderful ar- article about Federer winning uh, 2012 uh, Wimbledon in a similar fashion where he struggled with his injury that was serious as well uh, in the early rounds, almost uh, losing to Xavier Malis. I think it was third round, then goes on to beat Djokovic in the semis and uh, Mari in the finals. So, mm. yes, it's not, it's not, it is remarkable, but it is not unseen. Mm. Sasha, um, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, there's only so much time in the world, but thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting and uh, a pleasure to have you. And hopefully you'll come back when, when Novak picks up, presumably, at least two more Grand Slams this year. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. Cheers, Sasha. Thanks.
Slash your Ogma there from Sports Club. Do give him a, a follow on Twitter. He'll be tagged in all the At Love Tennis Pod stuff uh, when this comes out as a podcast. Uh, always interesting to get get the Serbian perspective. I know, George, he kind of rejected that, that he's a god in Serbia. But, you know, I mean, he, he is the greatest Serbian sports person of all time. I guess Luka Doncic might be the only one um, who I think gets put in that conversation. But, you know... Novak has, has changed, you know, Serbian tennis for, for everyone and, and forever. So, uh, yeah, great to get Sasha's um, viewpoint on that. And I know he's a passionate guy and, and he does know Novak pretty well. He he kind of was a bit uh, too perhaps proud to say so. But, yeah, Novak did basically propose to his wife for him. Um, I've seen the video. It really did happen. Um, it, it was, uh, I mean, it's a pretty unique proposal, I have to say. Uh, one of the strange, <laughs> the stranger things that I've been shown in a pub at half eleven at night during Wimbledon. But you know, that's the life of a tennis journalist. Uh, Novak Djokovic, yes, uh, he has equaled Roger Federer's record three hundred and ten weeks uh, at world number one. He is uh, even if Daniil Medvedev, by the way, I was looking at this today. If Daniil Medvedev won a Grand Slam tomorrow, and Novak Djokovic, you know, picked up no points tomorrow. He would still be world number one. He's that far ahead. You know, he's more than 2,000 points clear of uh, Rafa Nadal in second, uh, number two, and, and Daniil Medvedev at number three. It's, it's pretty dominant. Um, I mean, Calvin, is this a deserved record? I hesitate to use the word deserved. What I mean is, how does it compare to, say, Federer's 310 weeks at world number one? Um, yeah, the one sort of thing I'd say as, as a, a slight caveat on that is the rankings are a bit skewed at the minute because points haven't come off. So yeah. I think in April, I don't know, they, may, they might make no difference to what you've just said, but mm. he will have some points to come off, I think, because did he win the US Open the year before or not? Uh, well, he won the US Open 2018, so those points, points have already come off. Yeah, too. they've already come off, right, so... Um, I he hasn't got many to come off really yeah not many to come off yeah right disregard that I'm talking rubbish then <laughs> <laughs> um, no I, I think yeah it's deserved he's been completely dominant I think with the exception of a sort of 18 month period where he went walkabout he's been pretty dominant for the last the last sort of seven or eight years hasn't he maybe even longer than that um, when when he's fully focused on playing he's been even completely dominant over Nadal and Federer as well um, I don't think there's any real debate in terms of who the who the most winning, who the best match player is in tennis, who you would back out of anybody to win matches for you over a prolonged period of time. It's Novak Djokovic. Mm, yeah, and as I say, he is he is miles clear. And by the way, there's an interesting stat which I tweeted today, and I think everyone was as blown away as I was that Daniil Medvedev this week, uh, if he gets to the final in Rotterdam, will go to number two in the world. And he, is the, he will be the first person to go to number two, who's not part of the so-called big four, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer and Murray. The first person to be at one or two in the world that isn't those four since 2005, Leighton Hewitt in July 2005. I mean, I know we talk a lot about these guys' dominance, but it, it puts it in such stark terms. And, you know, Djokovic has been a big part of, he's pretty much been one of those top two apart from when he had surgery, and even then he almost clung on to it. Uh, for, as you say, pretty much for the last seven years. Uh, it's a remarkable achievement. George, do you think there's there's any other caveats? I mean, where do you rate Djokovic's 310 weeks at world number one against Federer's 310 weeks at world number one? Well, I mean, 
as with all of Novak's records, I always say this. I mean, you know, if you look at Roger's start to life in tennis, he didn't have Rafa and Novak to go through. You know, <laughs> so what are you, what are you saying? About, what are you saying about Marcus Bagdatis? I, I, I won't hear a word against the man. Yeah, I, I mean, look, Novak's come into the the toughest generation all, of all time and smashed it. I mean, yeah. that, that, I don't think you can give him a higher compliment. You know, coming in as the third guy um, and, and and becoming the big dog. I mean, like he he is superb. I, I think I've said this before on this podcast. I'm sure I'm going to say it many times again. He's, in my opinion, reached the highest level of any player. I think he's, I don't want to say comfortably the best, um, because that that probably does a disservice to Federer and Nadal, but I think he will go down as the best male tennis player. And I've got a a little outside inkling he'll go down as the best um, of both genders and actually top Margaret Court. That's my latest agenda. 25 grand. 25 grand slams that would require if he stays if he stays fit for a couple of years there's, there's absolutely no reason it can't happen um that is a conversation that we will have many times over the next couple of years of absolutely no doubt um there's not many times we'll talk about david goffin perhaps um he won a title yesterday he beat roberto bautista agut uh, in the final in marseille david goffin is someone that we we kind of discuss in uh well with smiles on our lips occasionally i think is is fair to say he is someone who has been in and around the top 10 and top 20 a lot of the time over the last five years. He, I, I don't know what you think, Calvin, but he's someone who, he doesn't beat many big players, does he? No, he had that run at the O2, didn't he? Was it 2019 or 18? 18, I think. 2018. Yeah, where he was he sort of... I'm going to say he was phenomenal, but he wasn't even phenomenal for the whole tournament. He got destroyed by Dimitrov <laughs> early on in the tournament, didn't he? And then yeah. sort of had played well for three days at the end. Um, but other than that, yeah, he's, he's kind of never causes a shock. Uh, it always... He's one of those players who... It always surprises me that he's still in the top 20. Because when you're sort of looking at... When you're watching the tournaments, he's never really in the semis or the finals of any of the Masters or the Slams, that kind of thing. And he's still just there always sort of... He's almost got sort of uh, sort of permanent residency at number seventeen in the world rankings, um, <laughs> when no which, one can. Which, you know, to be fair, is is an achievement. <laughs> like, oh, you know, I, I always I always compare it, you know, to football. If you look at who the seventeenth best footballer in the world is, they're probably going for over eighty million pounds this summer. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they're definitely playing for well, they're all, all seventeen are probably playing for Man City at the minute. But um, <laughs> it, it's you know I think it's sort of somewhere it gets somewhat underrated in in tennis when that when that happens. You say to say anything, you know, sort of the 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 eighty ninth best player in the world is would probably be pay, playing for one of the last eight in the Champions League. So I think we underrate tennis players in that regard. Um, but yeah, Goffin, you know, fair play to him. He keeps. He must keep winning. It's just a, a sort of perception I have. But joking aside, you don't just get given your ranking inside the top 20. You have to win a lot of tennis matches at a very high level. Uh, and he keeps doing that. So fair play to the guy. Yeah, and he's picked up uh, an ATP title in the south of France, beating, as I say, Roberto Batista, who I maybe slightly unfairly refer to as the uh, 
the Spanish, the Spanish David Goffman. But you know, that, that's the kind of level he's at. Um, other title winners just to run around the world: um, Alexi Popperin uh, beat Alexander Bublik in Singapore. Um, it's a big deal for Alexi Popperin. He's he's Australian, but he's a Patrick Muratoglu uh, graduand. I think he he's based in the south of France. It's kind of a home tournament uh, for him if he bothered. But he was out in Singapore instead, where in the words in the words of Dan Evans, the points are great, but the money's awful. Um, so it wasn't actually the best field in the world. Alexi- Alexander Bublik, I think, was the number four seed. which probably tells you all you need to know. Um, Daria Kasatkina beat Mar- Marie Buzkova at Phillip Island. Uh, Iga Swiatek picked up the title in Adelaide, where Ash Barty uh, crashed out. She was the kind of the ticket seller, as she often is in Australia. Um, and she crashed out in the early round. She was beaten by Danielle Collins in straight sets. So... Um, my pick of Ash Barty's have good years going well, I see. Um, but Iga Swiatek is having uh, a good year because she uh, won the title. She blew away Belinda Bencic, a tactical masterclass, Calvin, as you well know. Um, just the kind of game plan that you can't really do anything about. I mean, you'd expect Swiatek to win that match nine times out of ten, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. She's a much better player than um, than Bencic is already. Um, and she'll definitely go down as a much better player. It, it was... Uh, it was a nice little sort of sort of opponent that you want in a final, I would think, that one. Mm. So, um, but she's a hell of a player, it's Vontek. Mm. Yeah, and, and going well. Um, the, the other title winner, or George, did you have, a, did you have something to say about Vontek? Because I know that the Polish press think you're some sort of expert. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say exactly that, that not to be missed this week is George Belshaw's thoughts on Igor Vontek in the Polish media. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it... They, they asked some quite nice questions. What are your thoughts on Iga Swiatek? I can't remember now, but I did give them kind <laughs> of... <laughs> um, <laughs> you know me, I'm like a goldfish. I'll say something about it. It's completely gone the day later. Yeah, um, but, you know, I, I, I was kind of saying I thought I'm expecting her to be top five by the end of the year. I don't know if you guys agree with that. I think the way she's playing and we, the other thing we were kind of discussing. She's not I far was off quite... already, is she? Yeah, yeah. The other thing uh, I, I, I think we she's discussing... one of the five. I... Sorry, I, I was going to say, I think she's already one of the five best players in the world. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was just going to say, the other thing that was quite an interesting question that was put to me was um, whether we think she'll become like the best all-court player. So like Osaka is obviously dominating on hard courts. Do we see... Fiontek is the player who's going to be adapting to all surfaces well. I, I, I'm kind of leaning. I said Hallett, but the minute's probably the player who has transferred across each surface best in this current little era. But do, I think Fiontek's certainly got the potential with all the weapons and the variety to her play that she can be someone we see doing really well at every slam this year. I, I think it's interesting because there are not many, in, in a different way from the men's game, I think there are not many all-court players in the women's game. I think you look at the top 20 in the world and you go, can't play on clay, can't play on grass, and that's just Naomi Osaka. No, I mean, I'm joking. Um, but it's true, she's never been past the third round of the French Open or Wimbledon. Um, but yes, there aren't that many like proper all-court players in that top 20. Um, Sviontek, I guess by nature of having had a great run at the French Open, which is obviously the slowest of the surfaces, and the fact that all the other surfaces are only getting slower. You know, Osaka said in Australia, she said, Wimbledon's so slow, it's almost like a hard court now, um, which I, I thought was interesting. I know it's kind of true. They've changed the grass, obviously, which helps. Um, but I think the fact that Sviontek's won 
on the clay maybe suggests that she she has the right game for it. Um, she looks a very good hardcore player. She seems to understand the game really well. I saw her talking this week about geometry and angles, and she said because she, she's known as someone who's quite unusual in in the areas that she hits it in. But she said, "Oh well, you know, there's, there's only a certain number of places you can hit the ball on a tennis court." And I was like, "Yeah, it's in, inside the white lines that you can't really hit it outside. It's not frowned upon." <laughs> But I, I think she just thinks about the game in quite an interesting way. And, you know, we've seen someone interesting in Jen Brady get to a Grand Slam final, although she had an absolute shock today and lost one and two in the in the first round. I can't even remember who she lost to off the top of my head. Um, but she it did not go well. Um, I think there's lots of players in that little group just below the top 10 who are quite different and bring something quite different to the table. And I think Svantec's one of them. Is she going to be the best heart, like all-court player? Quite possibly. I think Osaka is so good on the on hard court that it's inevitable that she will certainly on clay. Um, I don't know about grass because you know, as we've talked about before, there's so much movement involved. But she, her game is perfect for the grass. So if she can work out how to run around on it, then uh, I don't see why she. So I would see those two. Halep, Halep, I think is currently the most complete of anyone in the women's game. Um, but I think it, it's between Osaka and Shontek kind of medium term to see that. I don't know if you agree, Calvin. Yeah, I think so. um, she, she definitely has got an all-court game. I remember the first time I saw her was playing at Junior Wimbledon and it struck me how how she combined her brutal power. She was destroying everybody with her power, but also had fantastic feel and skills and angles and that kind of thing. And you looked at it and you thought, I, I I thought it in the second round, maybe the second or third round when I saw her, that nobody's beating this girl. She's she's, I've used the term last week, but it's like bringing a tank to a knife to a knife fight. The the other two names who are in my head, I would say, I wouldn't have had Barty in this category actually, but given she has won the French Open, she's a very good grass player, good yeah. hard quarter. Yeah. Andrescu is the other one. Um, just I think she's yeah. Similar to Sviontek in terms of brilliant feel, got a lot of power, very smart player. I think she's probably the other one pushing for top of that title. Hmm. It's definitely a new. It's def- Sorry, James. It's definitely a new era of the women's game where we're getting more complete players. We've not had that for some time. Even if you looked at look at the players who dominated, Serena was always underrated in terms of how how much of an all court player she was. But if you look at Sharapova, definitely wasn't. Um, that type of player and I don't think we've seen so many of them as we've got now if they stay fit it's going to be an interesting era Do you think that's partly because of the homogenisation of the surfaces? Um, I think the way that they develop also is a big thing and I think maybe you know countries uh, the, the Polish I don't know how they're doing it but they're definitely producing that type of player in male and female. The Polish were sort of, you know, if we could, if we could sort of stereotype a lot of those Eastern European countries, they tended to, even up to sort of 10, 15 years ago, they'd have sort of stiff, big hitting, flat players. But what you're getting now from a lot of those countries is you're getting that type of player coming through. They've, they've got more feel. They play with a lot more touch and a lot more variety than what they used mm. to. So I think it's more to do with that. We get a lot of players from those countries, and they seem to have <clears throat> they seem to have adapted well as well as other countries have. Mm. It's interesting. I, it, it's that thing with knowledge base in sport. You know, I mean, now 
you know, it's never spread quicker knowledge in sport because because of technology and the ability to watch matches from all over the world. You know, we're doing a podcast from four different cities in the world while watching matches from Doha and Cordoba and Rotterdam all at the same time. You know, in terms of spreading that knowledge, it's so much quicker. And so I guess the lines are blurred. But I do I do think the surface thing makes a difference to an extent as well, as much because it means people develop in a different way because they can more easily transfer their skills across as well. Um, but it's certainly interesting. Um, I wanted to change beat slightly um, to Argentina, to Cordoba, as I mentioned, because there was a surprise winner. And, you know, we've had lots of surprise winners um, in tennis over the last kind of couple of months, I guess. It's, it's a time for weird results. But I think probably the man that no one of us had picked to win a tournament this year was Juan Manuel, Juan Manuel Cherundolo, is the best I'm going to do with it. Um, he's 19, he's from Buenos Aires in Argentina, and he beat uh, Albert Ramos Vinolas in three sets in the final. I think George is saying he is the maybe seventh player from outside the top 300, maybe the eighth player from outside the top 300 to win an ATP title. Uh, he is going to rocket 120 places he did uh, by virtue of that um, win, up into 181 in the world he is now, which means he's higher than Robin Harzer, for example, who Andy Murray has finally beaten in three sets, I can tell you, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, has anyone got anything to add on Juan Mandel? Juan, I, Juan, I'm calling him Juan, JMC, run JMC. George, anything to add on him? I was only going to add that your maths is a bit dodgy. I think it was 150. He's gone up probably 120. <laughs> I mean, that is I mean, I didn't have the numbers. It's a big jump. Estimating, but it, it's huge. He's also the youngest Argentine player to win an ATP tournament since Guillermo Correa in 2001. Um, yes, go on, George. The, the, the other thing I was going to say is quite... Um, I, I quite enjoyed there was a little interview with him on the ATP website that I was reading earlier and he kind of describes himself as a bit of a loner and his favourite things <laughs> are playing PlayStation and Netflix and he's not the most social guy. Um, kind of reminded me a little bit of Sissipas that actually when he kind of said that. I know Sissipas, you know, how he found himself a little Sissipas bit of a loner likes, at all. Sissipas likes to sell himself as a loner, I think. I think that's the important thing. Do, um, do we want to know who his idols are as well? That's yeah, I absolutely I took from do. It. Is, it, is it Guillermo Villas? Uh, they're not footballers, actually, because yeah. he plays a lot of FIFA, so they're, they're footballing idols. There are, there, are, there are three, and they're not very hard to guess, actually, Wait, for sorry, a 19-year-old. They, they are footballers, or they aren't footballers? They are. Three footballers. Right. Bearing in mind he's a 19-year-old, yeah. so... Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi, yep, that's one. Sergio Aguero? No, no, that's the only Argentine. We're talking world football, mainly. Oh. Um... Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. And then Kylian Mbappe? Not Mbappe. Oh, no, Neymar. Is it Neymar? Neymar. It is Neymar. Oh. Yeah. Cool. There you go. That's all I really have to bring to the table, I'm afraid. <laughs> it really is one of those that's come from nowhere as well with Cherandulo because I think I'm right in saying that prior to, you know, prior to last week, he's never been past the second round in a even at a challenger level. I think he's only... Wow. He, he won... I know he won a. Um, he he was playing a fifteen k in Antalya at the start of the year. He won mm. that, but I guess he was above that level. His ranking would suggest he was already well above that level, but he's never been past second round of a challenger. 
he lost to Liam Brody last year actually from from Britain. Wow. Uh, in straight sets, um, but so it's it's interesting. We tend to every couple of years we tend to have one of those players, don't we? Who just comes from nowhere, wins an ATP title, and then we don't hear from them again. Be interesting to yeah. see if he's one of those. Yeah, well, I suppose by that we, you know, George ridiculed my maths, but the the important thing about a big rankings jump like that is it does just level you up in terms of the tournaments you can get into. So I guess you very quickly get found out as to whether you're ready for that or not, because all of a sudden you're straight into qualities of, I mean, I guess maybe not ATP tournaments at the moment because they're pretty stacked, but I mean, I guess it's the, what is it? They call it the golden swing in South America at the moment. So, you know, there are some decent tournaments going on. I think Francis TFO is playing, by the way, um, in South America on the clay. He's like quite rare for the Americans to go down and do that, I understand. But I saw someone paying tribute to him trying to play some clay court tennis. Um, I'm kind of fascinated by Francis Tiafoe at the moment, just because he seems like a really good bloke um, and quite funny and quite honest, which I kind of love. Um, but anyway, he hasn't done anything of note recently, so we can move on. Let's talk about Andy Murray. I mentioned that he is into the next round of uh, the tournament in Rotterdam. He may be out by the time you listen to this, but one thing we can talk about are his performances last week um, in the south of France. Uh, where he played off the back of having made the final of a challenger in Italy. He then pulled out of a second challenger to head over to France and play in the Open de Sud, where we were all interested to see how he'd get on against Yannick Sinner uh, in the second round. We didn't get that opportunity because he got bounced out by Edgar Gerasimov, uh, the Belarusian who got to the second round of the Australian Open. He lost to Aslan Karatsev for winning about four games. It was a pretty disappointing result for everyone concerned, apart from Ego Garasimov. Even he might have felt a bit embarrassed, quite frankly. Uh, George, it really wasn't good, was it? No. <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I think we were kind of saying a bit last week that the manner of it was pretty poor as well. Like, just completely fell away after losing a pretty tight first set. Yeah. Um, I, you know, he's done well today to win that match because I don't think he was playing well either against Robin Harser. Um, for and he was large periods of it. Inside, you know, he was yeah. But there was a bit, you know, I imagine he gave himself a bit of a kick up the backside last week for how he how he went away from that match, um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, not something we really would associate with him. I, I, me and Calvin were chatting a little bit before we came on, on tonight and were saying we we thought he looked a lot better physically generally that's that's like the main positive to take early on from these tournaments but the tennis hasn't quite come with the physicality just yet but I, I think if he this is what I was trying to say last week but I think if he remains in this physical place the, t- the tennis will surely come because he is such a naturally gifted tennis player that I just find it hard to believe he'll carry on at that level um yeah, what did you, know. you, Calvin? What did you make of his hitting today? I mean, you said in the WhatsApp group during the first set that he was just missing a lot. Yeah, I, the thing what stood out for me was that when he came back the first time, even when he won that title, it looked like he was playing through the pain and physically he was struggling. But he was just because of who he is, he was swallowing it up. But today he looked. If you if you talk, if I didn't know the injuries that he's had, I wouldn't have thought he was injured. Uh, or, or that he had any pain, he wasn't grimacing or anything. He was just in the first set. He was playing like a drain, and and that was mm. th- that. That's why he lost. He was missing balls. The one thing that 
you won't you you wouldn't expect Murray to do would be missing rally balls, and he was just missing a hell of a lot of rally balls, and then he'd be setting points up and missing sort of three quarter forehands that that Murray doesn't miss. He's a great match player, and great match players don't miss those balls. But great match players, to be fair, they do what he did today. They won a match when he was playing like a drain. Hmm. It, it says a lot that I actually don't know who he plays in the next round because I I wasn't. I wasn't really looking that far ahead uh, in the draw. I was looking at Robin Harter and thinking, well, it'd be good if he wins that. Um, George, I don't know if you know off the top of the head. Is it, I think he's got... He, has he not got Hatchin off of Vavrinka? Have I made that up? Could, or is that Cam Norrie? Cam Norrie who did could, win today, by the way. Could be uh, Rublev next, I think. Uh, you're absolutely right. It is Rublev. I mean, I, I guess that'll be an interesting kind of, um, you know, gut check because we haven't seen him in with... I'm trying to think the last time he played a player of that level. Well, I mean, obviously, he beat, he beat Zverev last summer and he gave team a yeah. half-decent go and beat Berrettini. I mean, Rublev's a really good player to see him play, actually, because we've said a few times Rublev is he's steamrolling anyone who's not a ten, ten, top-10 ten player but struggling against top-10 players. So if Murray is... Mm. You know, play anywhere near close to what he is, or has any of that aura. It'd be interesting how Rublev approaches that. It's a good, good acid test for Murray, I would say. I think yeah. full, fully, fully fit. It's the type of opponent that Murray would definitely fancy his chances against because the feeling is, and I know this, the feeling is amongst those those top players is that Rublev doesn't. He's not the most skillful player, and he's quite robotic in how he plays. Um, and they think they can get to him by. By just having more skill than him, and there's few players who've got more skill than Andy Murray. Mm. Um, it, it's again, it it looked to me, although you never know, the matches like today can do a play the world of good. Um, whether Murray actually believes he can get over the little the little lines during a match, winning the break points, holding from love thirty down, that kind of thing, winning sets, winning matches, um, and I, I it wouldn't surprise me if he takes Rublev out. Mm. He found he found aces at good times today, or big serves, yeah. or yeah, there were moments like that. But there were still opportunities. I felt you know, like fifteen thirty points where you kind of thought Murray of, of old would have grabbed it by the throat, and he just let it slip. And you know, Harza shouldn't be taking the racket out of his hand, but at times he was. But I think that's I think that's match tightness, though, James. That I, I, I'm not too concerned about that kind of thing. Um, mm. I think that's just the guy's played less than. I think he's played. I think they mentioned it on commentary. He's played less than twenty matches over the last two years, um, yeah. and not not many recently at all. I think if 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 he's still playing ten, if he's still around and in come sort of May June, I don't think he'd be missing those kind of balls. And I think again, just thinking there against Rublev, I think Rublev will either give him a bit of a good hiding, or if it gets close, if 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 the match gets close at any stage, I fancy Murray to win. Hmm. Um, let's talk more about British tennis because there is some actually on TV um, this week uh, which some people may not have noticed because I don't know how many people are watching BT Sport Extra at 11 o'clock on a Monday morning but that's the kind of sad life that I lead um, because uh, Calvin was sitting quietly on court while his charge Luke Johnson was in action against Max Basing it was a decent match as well um, until Max unfortunately went over on his ankle behind the baseline and, and went off on crutches um, while set up in a tight second set. So uh, we wish him well. Um, if he's listening, um, it looked 
painful to say the least. It looked innocuous actually when he first went down and then it was clearly a little bit more serious. Um, Calvin, this is the UK Pro League, I think I'm right in calling it, not the UK Pro Series, which is a different other thing. Um, it's over the next eight weeks, I think. Uh, it's a kind of series of round-robin tournaments with a, a grand final. Um, it's on BT Sport, as I say, which is obviously a big deal. It's the first time it wasn't on BT Sport last year. Um, Calvin, t- tell us a bit about your experience today, sitting not with a great view, despite the fact that you were basically on court. Yeah, it's. Um, I'll just correct you on one thing there, James. It's not, there's eight tournaments, but they're not over the next eight weeks. Uh, they are. They're doing four around about now. I think there's four over the next. There's four over the next eight weeks. I think, and right. then there's four later on in the summer, and then a grand finals later on. Um, so, yeah, and if for anybody who doesn't know, it's a bit different from a normal tournament setup. There's twelve players um, in two groups of six, and everyone plays everyone else in their group. And then over the weekend, you have playoffs where whereby every player will end up with a position one to 12. Um, so everyone plays seven matches. Right. Um, okay. So there's no knockout, that kind of thing. Um, basically, yeah, today I was, um, I was sat on court. Uh, the viewing isn't great. Um, they've positioned us behind the umpire's chair. So we can see one half of the court in its entirety and about a third of the other half of the court so if there's any cross-court backhand rallies today um i was just watching balls disappear into the abyss (laughs) and seeing if they came back um although of course it's kind of you know it's not like you're allowed to coach even though you're sitting eight feet from your player you're really only allowed to say come on yeah we can give encouragement but not coaching Um, which again on on a serious note this is you know this is relatively valuable tournament time and and prize money for you know someone like Luke Johnson your player you know he doesn't have to fly to Turkey or Brazil or you know outer Mongolia to to pick up a couple of points and a couple of thousand pounds that he's just going to spend on hotels and flights and the five-star meals he has to treat you to um, yeah, well, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Michelin um, star only yeah. for Calvin. I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> um, I ate. I ate. I'll have you know that I ate a gyros for fourteen days in a row in Greece uh, <laughs> when I was there. <laughs> um, no, so it, it's fantastic, really, in that regard. It's the one thing that British tennis hasn't had over the last nine or ten years is decent domestic money tournaments where players can earn their money to go and try and further their career elsewhere. Uh, and this definitely does that. If, if you have a decent couple of weeks at one of these, you can play, pay for yourself a good good sort of three or four week trip abroad and come back and play a couple more of these and that kind of thing. And that's what we need. Um, and it gives everybody, you know you're getting seven matches. It gives you the opportunity to get into the week. It's interesting at the minute because everybody's coming in cold. No one's really played any matches unless they've been out in Egypt or somewhere like that. So we saw a couple of couple of strange results today. Um, as you said, Luke was a set down when, unfortunately, Max got injured. Um, Anton Matusevic, who's the highest-ranked player in the draw, he went down in straight sets to Jack Findle-Hawkins, who has actually... He's, he's not playing full-time anymore. He's a student now. I think he's playing for the money on offer. Uh, but mm. Jack has, has a cannon of a serve. He has a world-class serve. Um, so I think what we'll see this week probably... 
is some strange results. It's also absolutely freezing in that hall, which makes the <laughs> balls, um, which makes the conditions tough, to be fair, because once the balls get old, it's it's very tough to get the balls through the court. You saw um, you saw a lot today of, of balls coming back that you wouldn't expect normally to see. Mm. Well, if you want to keep up with that, it is all on uh, on BT Sport Extra, so you can stream it. You can get it on all your different BT Sport apps. I've had it on my Xbox all day. Um, which has been replacing my other much more distracting things that I usually have on my Xbox while pretending to work. Um, so, yeah, you can keep up with that. And uh, as I say, it, it's uh, eight tournaments over the next goodness knows how many months. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I have to say that it's it's I know it's not on the main channels, which is kind of my main frustration. Saturday and Sunday is, James. Saturday and Sunday is, uh, it's on BT Sport 3, I think, all day. Well, that's great. That's great news. Um, it's a shame it's not during the week, but you know yeah. you can't put you can't put the French football highlights from three days ago anywhere else. Apparently, um, <laughs> I, I'm not in charge of scheduling. It's uh, scheduling is one of those things that a friend of mine's a scheduler for Channel Five, and I always whinge to him, and he just goes, "Doesn't rate." If I say, "Oh, why isn't the boxing on all night?" He goes, "It doesn't rate." Doesn't rate. I'm like, okay, well, fine. Rating but, the king, unfortunately. But um, but the the 100 best songs of 1984 definitely does rate. Uh, on, yeah, exactly. On Channel yeah. 5. And constant <laughs> reruns of Midsummer Murders does rate. So what are you going to do? fact, class, yeah, to be fair. <laughs> Midsummer is supposed to be quite near here, where I am at the moment. Um, there's one other thing on the list. Well, two other things, um, quite minor. One called Rafael Nadal, one called Roger Federer. Um, both concerning tournaments that they're not playing. Um, Rafa Nadal pulled out of a tournament this week. I'm trying to remember which one it was in South America. Am I right? Acapulco, Mexico. Going so low not technically, So not technically Central. South America. No, it's but... North America, isn't it? It's, it's something, some controversial. Um, he's not going loco down in Acapulco. Uh, he said because of a back injury, the same back injury that um, restricted him so badly in the Australian Open. Uh, Everyone else, including the tournament director, said uh, because they couldn't afford to pay him. Now, this is not a good look, if you ask me. Uh, I think it's it's bad look for tennis. It's a bad look for Rafa Nadal. George, where do you come in on it? That's a good question. I mean, I've always always found the. Uh the secret life of tournament fees for these big players to be something that doesn't get as much airtime as it perhaps should um, mm. in terms of, for, for one point, because it's quite hard to nail down the tournaments on how much they're paying them. But, you know, there have been some interesting, I don't know if you're, my favourite example, I think, actually, was, um, well, I've got I've got two favourite examples, now I think about it. Oh, one of them was when, you remember Federer was, playing to become world number one when he was about 36 I think in 2018 he had a choice between um, I think it was Dubai and Rotterdam or something two two tournaments I like mean, that he definitely will have involved in the Middle East well he, he went to Rotterdam in the end um, and ah. I, I heard the appearance fee then was around twice what it normally is because um, they were so desperate to get the kind of you know the uh, media attention of Federer being the what, oldest ever world number one. Yeah. Um, so that's one. The other one that's interesting is actually that I've, again, this is, you know, I'm not saying here's, this 100%. Here's hearsay, but there have been some quite interesting ones about certain, I would describe, lesser players um, 
Messrs. Zverev being one of them, who's uh, apparently asked for a lot of money that's not necessarily been warranted per se, and tournaments not being able to afford him before. Um, so that it's a it's an interesting murky world um, appearance fees and tournaments of that ilk generally are having to pay a lot of money to get these guys to go along and it you know it's not always something that's put out there so much so it's interesting it's come to light this week and i suppose the problem is that you, you could all club together you know as tournament directors around the world and say right we're not paying this anymore but realistically because tennis is such an international game and really i'm only looking at one international area of the planet there's always someone who will be prepared to pay these petrodollars to these players to, to, to come over and play in their tournament. And I kind of sympathise to a very minor extent because these are the guys that sell the tickets. You know, I'm currently watching Marton Fuksovics against Riley Apelka, which I can guarantee you no one has ever deliberately paid for. But, you know, it, it, it's not selling tickets. But if there were fans in the uh, arena at Rotterdam, Andy Murray would have sold a whole load of tickets for this session and they would have had people in to watch Riley Pelker and Martin Fuchsovitz. So I do understand that these are the guys that sell tickets. But equally, if you want to get paid, win the tournament. Like that's, that, that, that should be how tennis is. There should be more merit-based. And I get that you need some sort of like you know ground floor where it's like, if I go to this tournament, I need to know I'm going to make at least X thousand dollars. But as you say, George, it's a murky world and it's not a nice one. Yeah, and I, I, I think the other thing I was just going to kind of say on this is the admission from this tournament director that they're not really in the position to pay the fees that these players are commanding speaks to a kind of wider issue that's kind of appearing in tennis generally, I think. I think it was Gilles Simon. I've had a few days off, so I've, I've only been keeping half an eye on things. But Are you honestly, you come into this podcast every and go, "Well, I've been off." Like, do you ever work, George? This is a tough life, mate. I've worked a lot this year. I needed a bit of a rest. Um, but yeah, you know, I think he was saying, "Look, the amount of money in in a pandemic, it's not worth my time going around to do this." And you know, a lot of players who were who've been up to the top 10, top 20, top even top 30, kind of multi-millionaires who, you know, there, there is a financial motivation. You remember Benoit Paire, I think, talking about it when he went out the French Open, basically being like, I probably wouldn't have bothered if I wasn't going to pick up 55 grand for this. You know, there is that kind of motivation. And, and as soon as that's gone, uh, in fact, Evans was talking about it as well in Singapore, wasn't he? Um, saying, you know, if the money is going down, it, it makes you question, do you want to, to go there? So tennis could find itself in quite an interesting position pretty soon where a lot of these players are, well, they're struggling to attract a lot of the highest caliber players for the events that aren't Masters and Grand Slams, the ones where they're kind of mandatorily forced to go and play. Yeah, um, I, th- I think that it's it sort of, it's a bit of a, a bugbear of mine that the, there's obviously a problem with the, the financial ecosystem of tennis. I've spoke about it before, how much the top guys are getting compared to the guys lower down. And especially in the current circumstances, um, I'd seen, I realise I'm going slightly off topic here, but I'd seen John Isner again piping up last week about the money in Miami coming down, uh, the prize money. And John Isner seems to have sort of positioned himself as the guy who always argues about money. 
now. Mm. And he would have you believe that he's living on the breadline. And I can assure you that some, that John Isner is a very, very, very wealthy man just <laughs> from the money that he's made in tennis. And it, it sort of, I think both the players, the well, one, say both the players, the players need to have a look at themselves into how they're handling this sort of thing about money. They're getting paid a lot of money to play tennis. And I'm sure Nadal, even his appearance fee that he's turned down would have been a lot of money as well. Mm. Yeah, it's it's not a good look. I mean, John Isner, for the record, has a lifetime prize money earning of just under $20 million. Um, so he's done all right for himself. And as you say, sorry, George, yes. As I say, my favourite, lot, most players will kind of pretend to you it, it's not all about the money. I think my favourite one was Al Magro who actually just famously said on court, I've won 10 million quid, I don't need to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that, I, I do kind of rate that, to be fair. I think if you're upfront and honest about it, then it's a bit more funny. But some of but them yeah, are making what, out like what, it's a great crime against them. But, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I think a, a level of honesty is appreciated. What you absolutely can't do is say you've got an injury that no one's really buying uh, and that clearly isn't, well, it may be true, but it's clearly not the main issue at stake, um, as was kind of pointed out with, with Nadal this week. Um, we're yet to find out why Roger Federer isn't going to be playing in Miami. Uh, that news broke a couple of hours ago. He's pulled out of the Masters event in Miami, which actually really hit me hard because I had my monthly planning meeting today and was kind of going through the calendar. And it just started to feel like life was a little bit more normal, you know, couple of 250s here a couple of 500s here moving up into Miami they're gonna have fans in there you know big field and it end of March almost felt like proper bit of tennis um and with a big field as well uh, and then Federer pulled out and um, we don't know exactly why yet I certainly haven't seen anything George you may have um but the likelihood I guess is he's playing in Dubai and Doha and and realistically he wouldn't want to play three times in four weeks yeah I, I think it's just a case of schedule management. I mean, from his perspective, probably not going to go and win Miami, realistically. I mean, he might. Maybe that's a bit harsh. <laughs> but, you know, I think a lot of these guys, if we talk about Federer, what he wants now, probably eyeing that Jimmy Connors title, total. Um, he's, he's Whatever I said is that a Masters 1000 event isn't going to pay him a lucrative appearance fee. Well, that, I mean, that is probably true as well. But I think also in terms of just easiness of turning up and maybe picking up a title, he's, he's going to have a, an easier time doing it there. Um, he's also got you know, a training base out in Dubai and stuff. So probably quite a comfortable place for him to go and muck around and do whatever he wants to do. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I, I know the restrictions probably aren't as bad in Miami as well, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty carefree in Dubai and stuff at the minute. Um, so yeah, my understanding of um, Instagram is that it's pretty pretty easy going out there. Yeah, so yeah, I I, I don't think, or at the minute anyway, I'm, I've not heard it's anything physical. I just think he's going to be quite careful with his schedule. I, I was slightly surprised to hear him say he was going to bother with the clay again. To be honest, um, from previous yeah, comments, I mean, I'll kind of believe that when I see it. You know what I mean? I, I think I do think he will turn up and do it. He says he'll do one before, doesn't he, and the French? Um, I guess it's just a case of doesn't want to play, overplay, overdo it. Get him, he, need, he needs some matches before 
the grass in Wimbledon, you know, to get that freshness back and test the knee out, um, but doesn't want to overdo it. So, uh, yeah, I'm not reading too much into it just yet. Yeah, I was just going to say that I don't. I, now he's not playing Miami. I think he probably will play the clay. I can't see him playing two events in the Middle East and then not playing for two months. Um, that sort of wouldn't make any sense, especially mm. f- from either keeping his sort of rhythm and his form, but also he's, he's sniffing those titles, isn't he? Once those 100 mm. titles might turn up for a couple of challenges or something. Play Stuttgart or something like that. Are you allowed? I know they don't count for the, the grand total, George, but I mean, is there anything like in, in league cricket, for example, you're not allowed to play at a certain level if you've ever played first class cricket? I mean, is there anything to stop like the world number one turning up to M15 and like, you know, Walt yeah, you can't you, you can't play M15 if you're out, if you're inside the top 200. Okay, right. Yeah, I don't know. I think there is rules as well on challenges. I'm not sure what they are, um, but there is. The cutoffs are sort of they're very generous. Like you know, I think <laughs> for 15k playing, if you playing, if you're 200 in the world and playing a 15k, it's still pretty brutal because that's the lowest level of tennis tournament. Yeah. Um, so, but um, but yeah, I wonder whether Federer is sort of taking advice off Pele. How, 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 to, how to pad those stats uh, on, on world titles? Oh, that would be good. I would pay. I would pay money to watch. You know, uh, like when okay, Marcus Willis is a bad example, but you know, it was vaguely amusing to watch Federer play against someone who clearly just didn't even think they could win a point off him, and at one point looked like they might not. I think I'd watch that maybe briefly. But maybe not six times in a row as he wins a title without dropping a game. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's not unfeasible that Federer and Murray could take each other on in a challenger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> imagine, imagine that. Oh, that'd be great. Surbiton uh, challenger coming up. Murray, Murray, well, call, calling, calling their own lines. Poor old Surbiton's been cancelled, of course. So yeah. won't oh, be yeah, this yeah, year. So. Yeah, well, maybe so. they'll maybe they'll play the Ilkley Trophy that's not in Ilkley or something like that. Um, <laughs> George, we're over time already, but I'm going to throw it open to any other business, which is usually your opportunity to say, oh, no, but we've missed this. Have we? I don't think we have. I think I think you've stuck to my agenda pretty well today, James, which is unlike you. You've uh, ticked everything up. Damned, damned with faint praise, if ever there was one. Well, in which case, it just remains for me to say that if you are listening live on Locker Room, thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to our podcast, Love Tennis Podcast, wherever you usually get them. You can follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod. And if you are listening back on the podcast, thank you for making it all this way through. Please do leave us a review because you clearly enjoyed yourself. <sighs> and we'd like other people to be able to enjoy themselves as well. Um, all that remains for me to say is we'll see you next Monday at 9pm. Th- thank you, Sasha, as well, I guess we should say I one more Sasha time. multiple times. Well, yeah. was, one, uh, one last time, one last one, time. Well, I mean, yes, I do follow Sasha Ojmo on Twitter. Um, he is, well, as far as I know, the best Serbian journalist uh, there is, because I don't know any other Serbian journalists. So he's well <laughs> worth a follow for all your Novak Djokovic updates. Cheers, guys. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. 
We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.